0: Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the third eye doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us. And without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, Sarah, how are you today?
1: I'm really well, thank you.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I've literally spent the last 40 to 50 minutes trying to organise this, um, you know, technical, uh, uh, you know, perfection, which, which uh, hopefully it'll work. Hopefully it'll work and, and people are listening to us. And, um, you know, I must be honest with you. I haven't done a podcast for about six months and I've literally left it. And I thought I could just walk back into it, you know, as if, you know, nothing's changed over the last six months. Yeah. So I've paid the price. And, um, <laughs> you know, that happens to us sometimes. You know, we think, yeah, that's fine. I'll just walk into it like before. Um, a bit like careers. Walk back into our careers.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes it's a nice reminder that you can also, even if you do plan, sometimes there are things beyond your control, aren't there?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, internet is a bit of an issue these days because literally everyone's on the internet now. Um, And we have, I mean, I have three kids who are um, literally being educated over the internet. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's taken over our lives now, the internet.
1: It's certainly become a tool that we became very reliant on, hasn't it? I think um, for better or worse, yeah, I've got a couple of kids and one of them uses it really responsibly and the other one has a slightly more addictive relationship with it. And I think I certainly, that resonates with me is how do you have that, get the benefits (laughs) without then it becoming something that you rely on or become very addicted to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very easy. Mm -hmm. You know, addictions are very easy uh, these days. And, you know, it's just so easy to sort of get into it. And um, for a lot of people, that's the only way to 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 de-stress is to get into addictions.
1: Well, also the dopamine hit, isn't it, that you get through social media and at the moment, We're not having the opportunity to connect with people face to face. So you're not getting the same feedback. And even when you're having these remote meetings and we're all having a lot of them at the moment. I think if I had stocks in Zoom, I'd be a very rich woman right now. Um, You're kind of you're relying on that for your human contact for a lot of people. But it doesn't have the same quality and it's definitely more tiring, isn't it?
0: yeah it doesn't work i mean you know it, it 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 doesn't have that um evolutionary quality which we've all developed over millions of years and for us to you know kind of expect us to adapt to it within within months and years you know that's that's uh it, it just doesn't make sense whatsoever and uh, you know pushing this artificial intelligence um agenda Uh, you know, just to cope with the current situation, I don't think is the answer, to be honest.
1: No, I think it's very different. We're making do, aren't we? We're making do. We're trying to make the best of it, and it's one of the ways of connecting with people. Um, I've started writing letters recently, um, and even though I'm not seeing that person's face, me writing down the words and sending a physical thing to them feels like a much more profound form of connection um, than face-to-face. Why did you start writing? Um, It was partly... um, Why did I start? It was initially because at the beginning of lockdown, um, somebody in my family died and I wanted to do a proper condolence letter. And I just remember sitting there and I went upstairs and like a cat, I found a patch of sunshine and I sat on the carpet and I spent 45 minutes writing, writing a proper handwritten letter. And actually it felt amazing doing it because I really thought about what I wrote. I put some very special memories into it. I put a lot of love into it and it felt really good sending it because I knew the joy that would be had or that how appreciated it would be and and it was definitely appreciated what i wrote was read out at my great aunt's funeral Um, and i just think it's a it's a deeper level of connection and so that gave me this feedback that we go yeah i'd like to do that again i'd like to do more of that because whenever i have received something it means so much to me and i'll put it on the mantelpiece or i'll keep it in a special box of letters Um, they seem far more human don't they
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a skill that, that's um, that's that been passed down from generation to generation.
1: It was absolutely inculcated. My father was a, a journalist and wrote beautifully and, and very wittily. And my mother was a teacher. So it was absolutely one of the life skills that we were expected to have. And We now write very good thank you letters and Christmas cards. You know, I don't consider it a proper Christmas card unless you put a bit of information, you ask a question, something that is trying to encourage further interaction. You know, it's more than just, here's a piece of paper I thought of you sent, and I get a bit grumpy about it. If I get one back, dear so-and-so, love so-and-so, I'm like, "Ah, you might as well have sent a text, at least ask me a question or write something, you know, just how you have that deeper level of, to let them know that they're properly thinking of me rather than just a task to tick off and yeah, I take pleasure in doing that, definitely.
0: Yeah. Uh, what kind of teacher was she, or your your mum?
1: My mum was a maths teacher, um but also a headmistress of a of a school and so there were lots of sort of life, life lessons in that. Yeah, I'm the only I'm the only doctor in the family. So it's I'm it's isn't is it, I've got a really interesting set of family and my sister was in marketing but now Curates beautiful art to sell to people. It's really interesting,
0: and uh, it, it's quite interesting the dynamic um, for me anyway uh, mm. um, with with you and your mum. What what was that like growing up with with a mum who happens to be a, a headmistress? What was she like?
1: Oh, she was she was super chilled, actually. Yeah um and she wasn't my headmistress thankfully i went to a different school but she was it was actually great kudos because i knew some of the kids at her school i would hang out with them i would go on the school trips and she was the cool teacher that everybody liked so it was lovely seeing her in that context and then it was a bit of a shock when i went back A few years later, and she was the head and suddenly she was all business and I sort of looked at her in this new light going, I didn't know you had this strict side to you. Um, It was, uh, you know, my, my, my cuddly, very vivacious, fun loving mummy was this real role of responsibility and I was very proud of her but I'd always seen the very human aspect so to see the kind of the position of responsibility the public speaker the person responsible for sailing a ship for which she still has tremendous pride um she really believed in it it was it was a fantastic role model to have um, yeah
0: yeah that's wonderful and and um, did you kind of uh, uh, let's say your kind of mindset changed as you grew, grew, um, you know, through your years, did that mm. change in any way or, or, was it pretty, pretty consistent in terms of her being your role model? Well,
1: um, yeah, it was interesting because she and I both always loved math. So we had that in common. <laughs> um, and we've always been quite a similar type of person. So, part of me thought yeah I'll definitely end up like her because that would be a really good thing um, but I knew I didn't want to be a teacher but we're still we're still very close now and see things in a similar way but I think I I could see as I became an adult and then a, as a mother and that definitely gave me a different insight also into the pressures that it put on her and I think she's quite open about the fact that her the job took more and more from her over time as the responsibility took on. And she was quite open about the fact that the further, a bit like us in medicine, the further you go up the chain, the experience, you then become management. You are then slightly distanced from people in your team um, because you have to be the leader and sometimes make unpopular decisions and you can't please everybody. Um, and how that can feel quite distanced in term, and the responsibility, but also the fact that you're not doing the stuff that you really went into it for, which is the love of teaching, the love of learning, the love of being with pupils. And I, I definitely see parallels with that and medicine um, and other people in different areas of responsibility who end up being promoted or see that the natural next step is, okay, I know how to do it really well, so now I'm going to manage it. And actually, we come into it with, almost no experience of how to yep. manage um and not necessarily an interest or business skills um, yeah i mean um, we
0: take these um interests um on board so to speak you know mm-hmm. it, it it kind of just falls in our laps and then we just get on with it um
1: yeah i when i was when i went to thought i'd been a locum for a while i i apply to be a partner because that's what you do when you're a GP that's the pinnacle of being a GP I'll be a partner and then everyone will be impressed by me and I'll look important I'll be fulfilling my destiny um and I thought I know absolutely nothing about management or business um and so I went I did the sort of classic medic thing I will go and do a qualification so I went to Warwick University I did a master's level module in business um and I genuinely don't think it made any difference whatsoever. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure my partners weren't, weren't impressed by it. Um, but somehow I felt that I needed that to sort of be worthy of that next role and didn't make a blind bit of difference. But uh,
0: why, why do you say it didn't make any difference? What, uh, um, what exactly happened?
1: I think it's a very, you know, when you go to university and you do these qualifications, they're often very theoretical. Mm. Um, And I think it was talking about things like, you know, all the flows in a business, how to be lean. And actually, when you're a partner, what you're actually talking about is, okay, what's the latest thing that we've been thrown to jump through by the government or to get the funding you're more it's far more mundane and day-to-day you know do I want to take on responsibility for this enhanced service which will pay me a bit more but will take three sessions worth of doctor time every six months and dealing with staff or a boiler breaking down it's actually bums on seats, and how do you manage that? Far more than I thought it would be the actual, you know, how do we make this business as efficient as possible? Um, And I don't know how practice managers do it. I'm absolutely in awe of practice managers. I think it must be the hardest job ever because you're having to deal with everything, plus possibly a group of people who may or may not function well as a team, depending on the group. I think that's a very difficult role.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people management is not for everyone. Um, And uh, I mean, it's many roles in one role. That's the thing. And, and, you know, but for some people, you know, they have the knack, you know, they have the ability to do it. And I don't know what it is about them.
1: I found the dilemma between thinking, these are people that I want to spend time with. I love going out with and having fun on a night out and getting a bit silly and having a laugh. But then I might be the person they come to looking for a raise Um, or I might be asking them to come in and run the flu clinics and we'll be negotiating what that looks like Um, or who's here on Christmas Eve and who isn't. Um, I found that that dynamic difficult because I wanted to be liked by everybody and be everyone's friend but then I knew that I needed to be part of making those decisions. Um, and I think the concept of morale within a business is very difficult. You know, Sometimes you'd have people saying, oh yeah, well, morale is low at the moment. And you think, oh, well, my morale isn't great. What do we do about that? <laughs> um, it's yeah, I think hats off to the people who are thriving as partners, running businesses, running organisations, being clinical managers, being medical directors, because I found that tremendously difficult and also not an area that I particularly enjoyed. There were, the bits I loved were the bits where you did decide, do we take on this piece of work strategically? Does that make sense? What's the best way of getting to see patients? Um, how do we want our business to work? I really enjoyed those and sort of bouncing that about, but it was really difficult finding the time and you're doing that on top of these incredibly long days, really difficult demand going up and up and up. Um, And just the level of energy that you need for that, uh, I think is tremendously difficult.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, plus you've got the family side as well, which, you know, as you talked about earlier, uh, you know, that literally gets neglected as a default. Yeah, yeah you're so busy. I,
1: I came home in tears the first couple of weeks I was a partner because my children were something like two and four. Um, and so by the time I got home, they were both in bed and I'd left before they'd woken up. So I had these days where I, I didn't see them at all. And it was a huge shock to the system. And I hadn't really anticipated that, even though I'd done the job as a maternity locum, it's not the same, is it? You kind of, you don't anticipate all the emails that you have to go through and make a decision on that when you have these partners meetings that actually you enjoy, that's an hour that adds on to the end of your day for doing your admin. Um, and yeah, I, d- I definitely found that adjustment difficult um, even though I was a job share partner and could you know, leave work behind in theory when I left work.
0: Yeah, and and when did you come to the realisation that it was okay for people to resent you and and not like you in your work?
1: (laughs) Did I come to that realisation? Yeah, no, I think I did gradually. I think there was that. It's a bit of growing up, isn't it? It's a bit like with patients and family and friends, the having boundaries and how important that is. That actually it's okay for me to have boundaries that that work for me yeah and that actually if i give out too much there's i'm just a husk of a person there's nothing left and i start becoming bitter and twisted and inefficient um yeah i think i grew up a bit as a partner and probably as a grown-up you know when you were asking about medical questions at the school gate from other mums um and just giving myself permission to put boundaries in. But yeah, didn't, it didn't come easily to me, certainly, that wanting to be need, needing to be needed and liking to be liked, I think is quite a pervasive feeling, certainly for me. I think others maybe find it, find it easier. But I think in terms of making business decisions, I think I got more used to that. Yeah. But I'm, I think as I gradually burnt out as a partner I think yeah. I w- I found it easier to make dispassionate decisions but not necessarily ones with a lot of heart to them so
0: so there wasn't one story that really sort of brought you to the forefront that I've got to think about myself first before anything else
1: um yeah I mean though it was it was one of one of my very dear colleagues, unfortunately, um, died one, one summer in after a very short period of illness and she was in her 40s. She was really the heart of the practice, very well regarded by everybody. And then another colleague was off also having treatment for an illness And then two, both of our nurses left because they weren't happy with certain discussions with the partners and they wanted to go elsewhere. So we went from being five partners down to two, uh, down to three and went from having a nursing team of, you know, replete um, to really being a skeleton staff. And that was then going into winter. And we had a burst of kind of adrenaline and morale where we had this real blitz spirit we all pulled together
0: mm.
1: and then winter came on and gradually we were all in our little silos working away coming home so tired that i couldn't even talk for a couple of hours after i got home and my husband who's a hospital doctor would say to look how hard can it be right. it's only a couple of days and then it's the weekend I'd be like, yeah, 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 I can do this. Um, and just increasing senses of dread going to work, and I just gradually had this feeling, well, hang on a minute, if, if my friend can become ill and die quite quickly, so can I. And are there de- ways that I can live my life that don't involve this level of stress and require this much of me? Um, and by, by the time it came to the spring and we'd got through the winter, we'd got through our quaff season and targets, um, I realised that it was time for me to make a make a healthier decision for me and I decided to leave my partnership. But that was a, after a period of quite a lot of discomfort. Um, and it felt very shameful and... I felt if only I'd been a better doctor, if I'd worked harder, if I was more efficient, you know, if I didn't waste time, I'd be getting home much earlier and not quite being so diminished by, by the job. Um, because when you're doing it, a lot of the time you're really enjoying it. You're seeing yeah. patients that you've had these amazing relationships with that you've built up over years and you're getting that positive feedback. But I'd come home and there would just be nothing left. Um,
0: so it was the doctoring that was winning. Uh, Sarah the human was, wasn't, wasn't winning.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Sarah the human, the mum, the wife, the friend, the daughter, the sister. Um, cat lover. Cat lover. And at the time, I also had some bees. I wouldn't say I loved the bees, but <laughs> yeah, me as a human was not thriving and it took a long time to work that out. I, um, at one evening, it was dark in winter and it was sort of seven o'clock at night and I was going through these blood tests, the, the emails. And I got some email from NHS England saying, oh, people can have some coaching if you want. I thought, oh yeah, that sounds interesting. I'll, I'll put my details in. And I went through it and I thought, oh, they're looking, <laughs> they're looking for the, the burnt out doctors here. I thought, okay, well, I won't get it. I got it. I was one of 250 out of 3000 who applied. And I thought, oh, does that mean I was at the lower end of, you know, people who are coping? And I thought, okay, the penny didn't quite drop, but I had that burnout. And by, by the, the third session of coaching, I said, so I've decided I need to resign. <laughs> she was like, where did this come from? <laughs> but the the thought process, I, I'd given myself that space. I think that can be the power of coaching, right? To give yourself that space to just think a little bo- bit more broadly about what you need and what you're not getting and what is taking away but not filling you up as much as you need it to. And also allowing yourself to be in spaces where you can thrive. Um, and now my portfolio is completely different and very little of it actually feels like work. And I'm probably working more hours than I was doing, but it feels very different. And I feel like I've got a different purpose. And yeah, I'm loving it.
0: What, what, what What's the purpose at the moment? What's the number one purpose for you that really resonates with you?
1: Um, I think it's the humanity is connecting with people on a on a on a deeper level in an unhurried way that's feeling just much less surface and rushed and i've got lots of different roles um i'm a tpd i'm an appraiser i'm a gp mentor i'm a coach i do i'm a head of coaching i do wellbeing talks And all of those, for me, the thread is that it's supporting other people and people in well-being um, as doctors. And kind of the idea is that you're allowing them to be the best, truest, most real, connected version of themselves. Um, Does that make sense?
0: It makes sense, Mm. you know, having that time.
1: Yeah. And... And I think it's really easy to go into these career paths and kind of do what I did, try and get to the top, because that's the thing you're meant to do at school. I was told, you know, you can be anything, but you don't then go, yeah, but if you also want to be a present mum, a present wife, a present friend, have a life outside, be able to enjoy nature, you might not be able to do everything or actually it might look different to the things that you have seen. There might be a really different and really interesting version of what you're doing. Um, and that the creativity and the, the, quiet, the playful, the fun, the jokey side
0: yeah.
1: um, can come out in different ways. And I think I'm only really just beginning to expand and kind of breathe again a bit more and think about who was that, kid at school who would be you know a bit of a joker but also loved learning I can be those both things um and I think you can squash yourself into these roles and some people they're really fantastic they find that role and they bloom and they blossom and they grow and they expand um and I say for me that passion is helping people do that I think
0: yeah being allowed that space to be creative which is which is what the you know the special source is you know because we are creative beings
1: absolutely, and if
0: you're given that space to create, then you know there's nothing better than that, really.
1: Yeah, and that we are all creative, and I think we, you know, you might be creative in how you dress, in how you decorate your house, you might be creative in so in the music you listen to or appreciate, or the views you look at, and the, and the tone in which you're looking at nature there are so many different ways and I think it I think we can all be a bit binary about things and I I do wonder whether school or university bring okay you're either a scientist or you're an artist you're you're swotty and studious or you're airy-fairy and you know, yeah. not very predictable. There are, these, there are these stereotypes that I think we can kind of be- believe and buy into the hype, and it's a load of nonsense, isn't it, really? And I think, yeah, we, we run the danger of not allowing those si- sides to come out, also for feeling that if you do stuff, it has to be brilliant, yeah. you know, this, this really kind of, I can only do things if it looks good and if other people look at it, what might they think? Um, I think that can be really crushing for people.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is very difficult when, when you know, let's say that culture celebrates uh, brilliance and perfection mm. um, in, in every aspect uh, of life. Um, whereas life is a learning process and you've got to start um, as an idiot, really. And I think yeah. um, you know the more, <laughs> yeah, you know, you know the more of a idiot you are, the better because it means that you're learning, um, and also the pressure is off. And I think oh, once yeah. the pressure is off, the people start creating.
1: Mm. Oh, absolutely! And I think this whole feeling that we have to be this superhero and this absolutely shining ex- example of the this whole pillar of the community the heroes that get clapped you know for people in healthcare. that's a pressure isn't it it's it's invidious. <laughs> it's it's invidious you know you're told yeah but you can't possibly fail because you are then this persona and you're like well what if I don't really feel like being that persona what if I'm the person that is a bit chaotic and a bit whatever I can yeah I think there's a pressure externally and also internally and I think social media can feed into that. You can see all these people. And of course, we only put our best lives out there. And I think we should just put examples of where we've screwed up, or, you know, burnt your dinner, or been a really terrible mum. One of my sister's best friends put a brilliant photo on once and it was all of them as a family, this shiny, beautiful family at this really cool festival. I remember looking at that thinking, oh, that looks, I should do that. Oh, am I denying my children? And then she put this photo of them afterwards of her looking really cross and her children all crying. (laughs) And she said, yeah, this is the truth. What you actually see from that photo is this one second. What you don't hear is the kids whinging, me bitching at my husband it's been hot and unbearably you can't breathe we're all knackered we're all hungry and you just think this whole persona that you put on the mask and i think it's particularly true in healthcare but i'm sure it's true in leadership roles this feeling that you have to be perfect yeah. um
0: and it's even more important from from you know old biddies like me and um obviously you you know you're very young Um, you know (laughs) for for the young ones to say you know to look at and say oh you know this guy's actually lost the plot or it hasn't got anything figured out and maybe it's okay for me to kind of have a few hiccups and a few uh, falls on the way
1: yeah and isn't it wouldn't it be boring if we you know it's a bit like um you know that Aldous Huxley book Brave New World and you're allocated this role in life wouldn't it be boring if we all just did that and I think I've done, I've done loads of things in my life. And I said to my husband, you know, when lockdown came and we are all being a bit macabre, I said, oh, you know, if I cocked it now, I would look back and go, I have lived a very full life. I have no regrets. I've done lots of travelling. I've worked abroad. I've tried different jobs. I've been to loads of places. I've read lots. I've seen lots of art. I've spent lots of time with my friends and family. I've had a lot of laughs. I've danced a lot. I've done really stupid things. Um, I, I feel good about that. Um, what's
0: what's the most stupid thing you've ever done, which you're um, willing to Yeah, talk no, about? I, well,
1: there are definitely a few that I definitely won't say, but one of them was skinny dipping in Lake Malawi as a... It was the first time I'd ever gone backpacking, and I left my money belts you know when you go traveling you have to have these belts that you fit under your clothes and it had my passport my visa my traveler's checks because you didn't really have credit cards I'm not as I'm not as young as all that Um, this was back in 96 and somebody came along and went oh well this thanks very much what a nice little present for me and walked off with all of my stuff so, and I saw them do it, but I couldn't get out of Lake Malawi, in which I also caught Bill Hartzier.
0: Yeah, I was I going to say, a few you months know. <laughs> later,
1: yeah, which I caught Bill Hartzier. So I came out of Lake Malawi with Bill Hartzier, no money, no passport, uh, not feeling very clever, and and no real plan for how to sort that situation out. <laughs> and there are many, many more, mostly related to unwise decisions while travelling. So it's... um. It's quite a it's that whole thing when your your prefrontal cortex is still developing in your early 20s and you make these decisions thinking, yeah, I'm going to be fine. Like getting on a motorbike. And I've never ridden a motorbike before in my life in Chiang Mai, the second biggest city in Thailand at rush hour with a helmet that doesn't fit me. And think, of course, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to go off motorbiking into the hills to look for some what were they? waterfalls. And actually, I was okay, apart from burning my leg on the exhaust pipe. But I look back now and shudder that my children might do stuff like
0: that. Um, They've got to do it, you know. I know, and I don't want to know.
1: (laughs) My dad said to me when I go away, he said, look, if you're going to do stuff like bungee jumping, skydiving which I did because he knew that I was a bit of an adrenaline junkie said please don't tell me until after you've done it because I just wouldn't cope um and I think that's a good policy
0: (laughs) yeah yeah no it is difficult I mean my son's 18 and yeah he does some crazy stuff and I just yeah just try and blank it out and be there for them you know whenever it goes pear-shaped and when this shit hits the fan what can yeah, you do? My
1: dad was good at that. I, I rang them when I had that money stolen. I rang them from Malawi on a payphone in floods of tears. And they were a bit like, what do you want me to do about it? I'm really sorry, but we literally can't help you in this situation. But I just needed to speak to them. And of course, everything ended up absolutely fine, apart from eating bread and water for a few days. (laughs) Um, My traveling companion not speaking to me for a while. Um, Yeah, but that actually, there was an example of total kindness. We ended up at the embassy in, I can't remember if it was Blantyre or Lilongwe, and the guard um, was there and he shared his lunch with us because we were so hungry, but he had, Yeah, that was a moment of absolute human compassion. (laughs) Yeah, I've never forgotten that, actually.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing what these, um, you know, good human uh, actions can do to us. Uh, You know, you talked about writing letters and, you know, just just imagine the feelings that, that you give to other people from those letters and well
1: there's good there's good evidence behind that as well i don't know if you've heard of positive psychology and there's a lot of evidence behind doing this stuff isn't it that you know people that do gratitudes every day are less depressed and anxious for three to six months if they're doing that that, and and certainly one of the things you can do is write a letter of thanks to people and you know somebody that you haven't thanked face to face write it and then, if you can read it out to them face to face, you benefit. You get these huge changes in you, not just the person that you're thanking.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. I, and and you know, this is so something that the and this is something that the um, the medical industry can learn from the coaching industry. You know, lots of positive psychology there, lots of um, psychological cues and and aspects um, that. Um, you know, it's not very medical and not very peer-reviewed and sort of what have you, but, you know, it has positive effects and, and affects on people.
1: Definitely. I mean, there's some good evidence for some of it. Certainly, certainly positive psychology, there's a lot of evidence for that. And then you, there's a lot of neuroscience that, you know, if you start noticing things that you're grateful for in the day, you will carry on noticing stuff. Like when you're shopping for a car, you'll suddenly see that car everywhere on the roads. It, it it changes your brain. The neuroplasticity changes your brain. Um, and I think there's elements of coaching that help you look for your inner strengths. And you then look for that and go, yeah, well, what was I? Okay, I've coped with this situation before. What strengths did I use then? Rather than thinking, well, that was all a bit cruddy. I hated that. You go, yeah, but I did I'm still here, aren't I? Okay, I've survived 100% of these situations. What were the things that I used to get me through that really awful time? Can I use that again? So it's recruiting that, um, those skills in yourself. Yeah, absolutely. There's more scope for it. It's not as – I think people don't – I think the more people that have coaching – understand the benefit of it and I think people that don't think it's a bit woo and a bit touchy feely potentially and there's that whole stigma that it's maybe associated with mental health but certainly it's hugely powerful and when I've had it it's just been absolutely transformative for me which is why I've gone on to do it and I'm doing a coaching diploma and learning tons about it now um, as a part of my role I think you'd be hard pushed to find an area of life that you couldn't potentially get gains from about it, yeah. I feel. Yeah.
0: And, you know, I'm a fan of, you know, having coaches who are non-medics as well. You know, I think yeah. you can learn from everyone and and everything and also every age group. So, you know, one shouldn't just stick with, with sort of doctor coaches. Um, Definitely.
1: The two people I've had coaching from, neither of those are, are doctors because who has to be, I don't have to be an expert in your life to support you to have the space to explore what would help you thrive, bring you joy. What are the elements that are missing from your life and how can you help find it? I don't need to know anything about you to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's normally behaviours and and habits and and the emotions and um, characteristics and personalities—you know, those are the sort of important aspects of what make makes us up. Uh, and you don't really need to be a, a medic to understand these things.
1: No, you just have to be a curious and a human. I think yeah. it's that—it's the humanity and the ability to, I think, just connect on that much deeper level and sit and be able to sit there and allow somebody to say or feel whatever they want to think and say that's okay and and work with it yeah there there was a chap called Carl Rogers who talked about person centered um work and it was all about unconditional positive regard and that expression has stuck with me I think it I think anybody who has that from somebody else is going to grow.
0: Yeah, yeah. One of my first coaches, a, actually, yeah, that was yeah. his main, his main thing. Okay. Actually, yeah, it was it was interesting times for me uh, during mm. those times. Great. So, if you want to contact you on a deeper level, yeah, what's the what's the best way?
1: Yeah. Well, my website is. Uh, www.drsarahgolding.com and Golding with a U like Ellie Golding the pop star and I'm at at Dr Sarah Golding uh, in Instagram, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn. Yeah I don't use Twitter much but I'm on I'm on most of them. Yeah they can come and find me and just get in touch sure.
0: Cool cool and 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 what's this about bees and 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 red slippers and
1: Oh yeah, my shoes. My bee happy shoes. Yeah, somebody sent them to me and they just brought me such joy. Yeah, I kind of I think I I started beekeeping as an absolute episode in mindfulness and watching how this unbelievably sophisticated organism works together blew my mind and it completely reinvigorated my love of biology and nature and just that on that microscopic level they're just unbelievably complex and remarkable um so yeah my 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 twitter page has got my shoes saying be happy Um,
0: (laughs) with a picture of a bee yeah with a picture
1: of bees on my shoes yeah i haven't completely styled out my house in bees because that would be a bit freakish but (laughs) i recommend beekeeping as a hobby wow
0: Wow. It's been absolutely awesome, Sarah. Thank you so much today for for being on the podcast.
1: It's been a delight, Hoda. Loved it.